Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Today, we're going to discuss if you should post photos of your children on social media, Banana Republic is now selling hijabs, and some Muslims aren't happy with them, and the tragic mass shootings in Texas and Ohio, motivations, reactions, and where we should go from here. And finally, of course, crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. This week, joining us in studio is Heritage Second Amendment expert Amy Swearer, a senior legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thanks for joining us, Amy, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, and encouraging others to subscribe. We could use your support. It really does make a difference. Should you post photos of your kids online? Social media has become a major point in our lives, and for most of our listeners, they don't remember a world without it. But as millennials are starting to have their own kids, though, what is the proper protocol for posting photos of them? Joanna Stern of The Wall Street Journal tackled this topic in a video titled, quote, Mommy, where's my photo going? Here's a clip. Number three, with artificial intelligence and facial recognition, there's no telling what these photos could be used for. And share, and share, 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 share. Mom thought about how a few years from now, all these photos of his face could be used for things we aren't even considering now. For instance, they could be put through an app to make him say something he didn't say or do something. So this video is really well done. And I wanted to bring up the third point because points one and two were one is maybe the child could be bullied because of photos of him or her on the potty. Uh, The second point was there's just really gross people out there and you don't want gross people looking at your child's photo. But the third point was that there's AI now. And with this AI, you can put your child's face on a different body and it could end up on a billboard in China or, you know, you could make their mouse move. Kelsey, you are expecting, and and we've discussed this on the show before, what are your plans to do with your baby photos? This is an issue I have struggled and struggled with um, because on one hand, you know, I recognize the concerns, and I think this video, again, it's posted at the Wall Street Journal. It's really worth watching because it does raise some very legitimate concerns. When I first thought of not sharing pictures of my uh, baby girl, I thought it was because of the predators um, and so forth. And I was like, well, that's really like giving them more power. Like, I think there's some basic things you can do to protect that, not posting pictures of your child anywhere remotely naked, even if you're covering up their private areas, I think that should just be an absolute no-no. You never know where that picture can end up. I think back to Larry Nassar, who had thousands and thousands of pictures of child porn. It's just awful to think about. Um, but that said, is it is am I putting my child at risk by posting a picture of the family together on Easter or doing it in moderation? And I would say no, but I also think this is a legitimate concern that we have no control over what tech companies are doing. They're using our information in ways that make us feel like we're being taken advantage of. So am I enabling that for my child by posting pictures of them online? And that said, being 
not, I'm not a big public figure, but I do have a public Instagram account with people who follow me from seeing me on Fox News. Does that open my child up to more risk than somebody else? These are all questions that I don't quite have the answer to. I guess right now I'm I am somewhere in the middle because I think, you know, even if I don't post pictures of my child online or I don't share her name when we announce her name, what happens if my local news reporter features her? Like I got featured in my local newspaper during my first communion and then my name would be out there to the public and everybody would know. And it'd be very easy to put together because, you know, back then maybe it wasn't published online, but everything published in a local print paper would certainly be online. So I I guess I fall somewhere in the middle right now, but this is still something uh, as I go into my final few months, I am still thinking through and taking very seriously. Amy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So actually, it's interesting to me. This brings up almost this broader concept of how we think about not just for our kids, but for our own like personal information that we put out there on social media and, and the way that we need to make sure we're taking proper precautions with with privacy and even just being aware of the things we post. You know, if, if you haven't heard, it's, it's probably a bad idea to have a super public profile and then to post things like, LOL, going on a three-week vacation to, you know, Hawaii, uh, see you guys never. And then you also have the general location of your house and like pictures of your house, you know, where it's just you're opening yourself up to a lot in a way that I think previous generations didn't have to think about that. And, and so I think it's just I mean, it's interesting because it's really just one specific focus of a much broader uh, conversation that we're having to have uh, as people in a very technologically based society with social media. And, and so, I mean, I, I generally agree that, you know, that there's a balancing aspect there and that there are certain things that are just probably off the table. Like if, if it's something that I would not want of me out there, I probably don't <laughs> want it of my kids out there either. But, you know, that, of course, means that I, I would have had to have have had that conversation with myself about, well, what is it that I do and don't want out there for me? Um, So just things to think about all around. And one example the video brought up that just shows how a little bit of information is actually a lot is someone who posted an Instagram photo of their child with their full name on like their second birthday. So it's not hard to do the math. And then, you know, the, the, the child's full name and their birthday. Like, that's a lot of information. You're about. a social security number away from, like, opening a bank account for that kid. <laughs> exactly. But, but then you can't live your life, you know, fearing right. of the worst. It's sort of the response to terrorism. Like, we we can't change the way we live um, because of these terrible acts. I think there are basic protections you can and should take online. I completely agree with that. And I I also respect people like Ben Shapiro. And we've actually had women who are public figures on the show who very consciously do not show their children's faces or use their names online. I absolutely respect that, especially with someone like Ben Shapiro. His children have been targeted by white supremacists, which is a conversation we're going to get into later. There is a lot of hate out there. But for someone like me, who's not like a huge public figure. A part of me thinks the world needs a couple more cute baby pictures. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure this out still. I, I Again, it's a conversation I want to continue on this show because I, I think it's important to think through and in the least be moderate in what you put out there because I do follow my, my favorite yoga blogger has the cutest little girl and she's been Instagramming her since the day she was born running around in just her underwear and swimming and all these amazing things but 
she's turning this little girl into a personality before this little girl has any consent to being a public figure. I I decided to do this. My child did not. And two, you know, this this child is mostly naked in a lot of these pictures. And I do think you have to be careful with the number of predators out there. Even if they're just using your picture, you may never know it. But how awful is even just the thought of that? It's it's terrible. So we'll continue to talk about it. Thanks, Kelsey and Amy, for your insight. For our next topic, we're going to talk about clothing store Banana Republic. They're now selling hijabs. While the idea seems to push inclusivity and received a pretty good feedback from the public, some Muslims weren't 100% on board with how the hijabs were marketed. The problem? The model's arms, and there was a slit in the dress that she was wearing in the advertisement. Twitter user at Momners, M-O-M-N-E-R-Z-Z-Z, who in her profile picture (laughs) appears to be wearing a hijab, said, quote, how is Banana Republic going to release a hijab line and have a model wearing a hijab with a half sleeve shirt? She went on to say, quote, if a big brand is going to advertise to Muslims, then they should at least make sure they're doing it correctly. Interestingly, when I checked on the Banana Republic site, they still use the same photo, but they cropped it to not show the model's arms. <laughs> uh, I think this goes to just show like brands really want inclusivity and they want to be woke. But it, this just shows it's, it's really kind of surface level. What do, you, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, like on on the one hand, I don't think anyone necessarily does or definitely should. I mean, there's no one who should have a problem with a clothing line looking at, you know, a, a type of clothing and saying, look, there's a market for this and we're selling this and we want to advertise that we're selling this. It's definitely a little different of a conversation when it's an article of religious clothing. I think you know, I, I don't know that Banana Republic necessarily intended to wade into a religious controversy, but it is hard because it's, it's a religious piece of clothing. And there are people who, even within the same religion, I mean, there are Christians who have different types of theology about modesty. And, and clearly there are Muslims who have different types of, of theological understandings of what you can and can't wear if you're going to wear a hijab. And um, so it's, yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation for Banana Republic to have, I think, incidentally waded <laughs> into here. Regrettably. Right. <laughs> But uh, I, I think the the underlying reality of you know clothing lines catering toward legitimate clothing interests that just happen to be religious. I, I mean, th- there's a validity to that, right? So I, I think it's I guess important to point out that if you actually go to bananarepublic.com and find this, it's actually being marketed as a rectangular hijab, where you know some Muslim women, from my understanding might buy a, a product that's just, you know, more of a general scarf that we might wear around our necks or use to cover up in a different way. Um, you know, they will wear it as a hijab, but this specifically is marketed as a product for um, Muslims. But that said, one of the first uh, Muslim women to criticize this, her name is Melanie Elturk, and she is the American Muslim CEO of Hot Hijab, which is on Instagram at Hot Hijab. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I can't take credit for finding this, but if you, um, I saw it on Twitter, but if you go to her Instagram, which I did confirm, you see plenty of pictures where she is showing her arms. She's wearing clothing with her sleeves rolled up, um, basically showing the same amount of skin as was shown in uh, the, the the marketing picture for Banana Republic with the um, short-sleeved sweater shirt, it looked like. So, and, and this was something I was curious because 
walking around, you know, the streets and and so forth, when I see Muslim women, I, I see them interpreting the dress code to all sorts of different degrees. Some cover completely from head to toe. You don't see any skin besides maybe their hands. Others, I, I feel, do dress very similar to any other American woman, but they, they wear the hijab. So I was like, well, maybe like they're not marketing towards the, the you know, the, the most strict uh, interpretation of the dress code. Maybe they're marketing to the more moderate interpretations. Um, and it turns out <laughs> the, one of the Muslim women who was uh, the main vocal critic of this picture actually herself will show her arms too. So just doesn't always add up. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's just something that within a free market context, I mean, uh, clothing lines that, that want to wade into this, um, which they're, they're free to do if they want to. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see that sort of back and forth because um, you know, it, it kind of overlaps with a lot of these religious um, interpretations of their own dress code. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the free market kind of uh, weigh that out there. So. Well, in a way, the criticism, I think it's fair to point out, but like the public shaming right. of Banana Republic for this is going to discourage them from doing what ultimately we all agree is a great thing. Like, why shouldn't Banana Republic have products for Muslim women? I mean, it's just like, I feel like if I were Banana Republic right now, I'd be like, I can't do anything right. <laughs> and it's right. so frustrating. So why even try? You're going to offend someone. And, and that's the problem. Everyone's just getting too offended by everything where, you know, Muslim women could buy this headscarf and wear it however they please. Yeah. So also, I mean, Chick-fil-A gets into that, too. Where they're like, <laughs> how, how dare you shop Chick-fil-A? It's it's the worst. And, you know, it still offers a good product and with a smile. So people go there and, um, you know, so I. We'll see. You know, I think if it's it's a good product that actually fits the the needs of Muslims who want to wear it, um, you know, cr- criticism be darned there. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I want to give Amy the opportunity to plug one of her colleagues' podcasts. Are you interested at all in what's happening at the Supreme Court? Uh, well, if you are, there is someone who is even more interested than you, <laughs> and. Uh, she has a phenomenal podcast called SCOTUS 101. Uh, it's led by my colleague, Elizabeth Slattery. Um, seriously, this woman is amazing. She breaks down everything that's happening at the court. Uh, some phenomenal interviews uh, with uh, lawyers who are going up in front of the court and former judges and just people you would not believe. Uh, great podcast. Highly recommend it. The best. And where can you find this podcast? You can find SCOTUS 101 on iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify or really anywhere where you can get podcasts. You can get SCOTUS 101. Okay, welcome back. With our next topic, it's unfortunately a a pretty sad one. Uh, As we all know by now, this past weekend there were two tragic mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio and in El Paso, Texas. And it's not even a week later and people are really debating some of the causes and, and some of the motivations behind these shootings. So before we dive into the issues of white supremacy and President Trump and guns, I wanted to go through some of the other issues that politicians and people are blaming. First off is President Trump suggesting violent video games are one contributing factor. Second, we must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must- then Senator Elizabeth Warren suggested Fox News is at fault 
in a quote retweet where someone is blaming Fox News for the shooting. She said, quote, we need to call it out. Fox News is a hate for profit machine that gives a megaphone to racists and conspiracists. California Governor Gavin Newsom suggested it's toxic masculinity. He said, quote, and I think that it goes deep to the issue of how we raise our boys to be men, goes deeply to values that we tend to hold near power, dominance and aggression over empathy, care, collaboration. And according to the Huffington Post, quote, that is a deeper conversation. Forgive me, a more difficult one to have. But I just wanted to introduce this into the debate. And I think very interestingly, Suzanne Vanker put the blame on diminished roles of fathers in our society in an op-ed for Fox News. She wrote, quote, I can vouch for this as the mother of a 15 year old son who would not be the exceptional young man he is if not for his father. The truth is, I take very little credit for who my son has become. He needed me the most when he was little. But once he became aware of his male identity, it was his father, not me. He looked to for guidance and direction. His father was and remains his model for manhood. Continuing the quote, when boys don't have this model, they suffer. And when they suffer, society suffers. A majority of school shooters come from a fatherless home. And a study of older male shooters, think, they use the name of the Las Vegas shooter, produces similar results. Indeed, the consequences of fatherlessness are simply staggering. What do you guys think? So this is something that we've been uh, studying and trying to understand uh, here at Heritage for uh, quite some time now. Um, And I think all of this, uh, all of these different, you know, proposed um, underlying factors are, are all kind of missing this broader point. I think it's indicative of this tendency we all have to take a very complex problem and try to simplify it and distill it down to here is the one thing that's wrong. And if we can just fix this, we'll fix everything. Unfortunately, mass public shootings, um, just like gun violence generally, are are a very complex problem that can't be explained uh, by just one or two factors. Uh, that being said, there are several factors uh, that that are important, that we know are important, that we know have statistical relationships to mass public shootings and the people who commit them. And I think some of that was brought up in um, the, the context of, of some of the sound bites you just played. Um, you know, certainly I, I don't think Fox News is, is to blame for anything or, or CNN is to blame for anything. Um, but, but there is a, a context in which some of the, the rhetoric, our, our societal rhetoric, our societal glorification of violence um, do, does play a role in fostering within certain young individuals, especially young men, a feeling of isolation, a feeling of anger, um, a sense of purposelessness um, that you really see in most of these mass public shooters, um, even though there, there isn't like a specific connection between violent video games and, and mass public shooters. It, that, that general idea of, of glorification of violence certainly does not help. Um, and, and the idea of fatherlessness of broken homes of, of the way that that of the way that that really affects people's upbringing and their their sense of purpose their, their sense of community you know the, their ability to to really understand themselves it, it does play a role but the reality is much more complicated than just one or two of those factors it's it's a bigger problem that is more complex than that that's one of the things that i find frustrating in the media aftermath of a mass shooting, we see people rushing to blame all these different things when really there are so many contributing factors that all need to be looked at individually and then as a whole. So Lauren and I happened to be down in Florida 
um, working on a story about the Parkland school shooting when we learned about these mass shootings over the weekend. And you might think, what are you doing down in Parkland a year and a half later? Aren't you guys a little late to the story there? Actually, I'd say we're, we're right on time. So information every day is still coming out about the shooter, about the school system that failed him, about his mental health, about the police response. There's actually a great book coming out by Max Eden and Andy Polak. Andy is the father of Meadow Polak, one of the students who was slaughtered in that school. And they got new information um, that, that we didn't know that contributed to this shooting that I would say is, is one of the most preventable mass shootings in history. Um, it really angers you reading this book. It comes out in September, and we'll certainly be talking about it and sharing more about it on this podcast um, once it is available to the public. But that's what I wanted to ask you about, Amy. Like, what what is the what is a productive way to respond? Because I guess you don't want to say nothing, but I actually made a conscious decision not to go on Twitter immediately after and um, call for a specific solution or blame a certain thing. Because in my time covering these issues and talking to you, I've learned that there is not just one thing we can magically do to fix this. Well, one of the things that I think we have to start with is, again, that that broader background and that context of who are the types of individuals you know, what who are perpetrating these? What do we know about them? I mean, there are some very consistent themes. It, it is very, very rarely the case that individuals who commit mass public shootings um, had no red flags or concerning warning signs in their background. These are, by and large, not individuals who are mentally and emotionally well, um, who are in a stable place in life, um, You know, whether that's because they come from broken homes or because they're dealing with um, other sorts of deeper mental issues or because... Um, you know, as a result of stress in their life or or even just, um, you know, a lack of, of pushback or for whatever, they're, they're falling in line with dangerous um, ideologies like what we saw in, in El Paso. We're seeing people who are broken human beings, um, predominantly young white men who are showing all of these warning signs. And so, again, we, we know that factors of, of mental health play a role. We know that um, factors just associated with that sense of isolation and sometimes with connection to to violent ideologies play a role. Um, and so we have to start with that context of these are not people who are just popping up out of the blue that we have. We have no idea this is happening. These are by and large people that are the exact types of people that when this happens, they're like, oh, I bet it was this guy because mm-hmm. like we've been saying for a long time he's capable of doing this. And so starting with this reality of you know, not not to say that we can play minority report and predict who's going to commit crimes, um, but we're seeing consistent patterns of, of people who are, are well known to to fall into this category and be a risk of dangerousness. And it's not until after they've already committed that that horrific act that we're like, oh yeah, like this was we we saw this all along and just didn't do anything. Um, because once we understand that, we can start looking at well, how do we then in a legal context. Um, you know, narrow this down and identify these people and, and not just disarm them, though that that is very important, but then also then direct them to places that are going to help them as human beings. 
Um, because I don't think anybody should sit here and go, yeah, it's sufficient to just have a bunch of broken individuals who don't have guns. Um, but we should be saying, you know, we, we want to fix these people. We want to help them. We want to make them whole because that's what's going ultimately to make our communities, our schools, our families safer. And Amy, I wanted to ask you more about the white supremacist component of the El Paso shooting. Um, this this man was disgusting in, in every way of the way that he wanted to target, you know, specifically Hispanic people in this shooting. Um, but how big of an issue is these white supremacist shootings? And, and is white supremacy really on the rise of the way that the media makes it sound? Well, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, so first and foremost, it, it's very clear that the El Paso shooter um, was driven by a specific ideology that is abhorrent, um, that would violently attack people on the basis of race and, and national origin. Um, and, and that's that's abhorrent. It should be condemned. Um, and, and by all means, we should treat it for the thing that it is, which is domestic terrorism. Um, that being said, uh, so it's not it, – that's actually a very small percentage of, of mass public shooters who are fundamentally driven by an ideology, whether it's white supremacy, um, whether it's, you know, Islamic fundamentalism, um, or, or whether it's some other sort of, you know, coherent ideology that that's driving people. Um, though sometimes what you'll also see is people who are just kind of mentally unstable, who are grasping onto ideologies and, and not really figuring where it's not necessarily driving them, but it's not helping the case either. Um, but but that is actually a quite small percentage of, of all mass public shootings, which in and of themselves are a, a very small percentage of, of the problem of gun violence um, overall. So I'd, I'd say, yes, it is a problem. Um, it, it is uh, something that presents a, a danger to the public when, when you have people who are adhering to violent ideologies that want, um, you know, that, that, that drive them to commit violent acts. Um, and it is something that, that clearly we've, seen like this isn't an isolated incident this is something um that has a bit of a, a pattern to it where you know this being an mo of you know, people who espouse violent rhetoric if you will but to take it that next step as i think some pundits have and say oh well th- that means that white men are the biggest threat to american society it's one it, it's abhorrent um to, to categorize all white men on the basis of what a couple individuals are doing, just as it is to categorize all Muslims by what some Muslims have have done in the name of Islam. But it also misses just the broader context of you know the, the scope of the gun violence problem and and what is actually driving most gun deaths and what the entire context of, of threats to the United States encompasses. Um, so just this broad over categorization of of white men that that is actually dangerous in and of itself because it, it makes it seem as though you know, mass shootings and and this very specific type of mass public shootings are you know, happening left, right, and center, and it's something we we all need to to fear every time we walk out the door. Um, and that's actually not going to be the most, but by far, not not even close to the most common interaction that people have with gun violence. It's actually suicide. Um, you are much much more likely um, to have your interaction with gun violence be the suicide uh, either of yourself or someone you love than to experience a mass shooting much less to experience violence from a white supremacist. Um, So we need to keep that in context. Highlighting the ugly side of the reaction to these mass shootings, the media pretty clearly doesn't like the president because some of them think he is actually a racist or white supremacist or is enabling and encouraging racist and white supremacist. After these shootings, the president very firmly came out and 
made his views on white supremacy very clear. Here's a quick clip. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. So, Amy, I'm going to ask you about this, but in my opinion, President Trump said all the right things in this press conference, a clip of which you just heard. But when The New York Times reported on that exact speech, it did so with a headline that originally read, Trump urges unity versus racism. People on the left quickly decided they had a huge problem with this. And The New York Times apparently agreed, amending the headline to say, assailing hate, but not guns. So the executive editor of The New York Times said the headline was written on deadline and they quickly changed it after realizing it was a, quote, bad headline. A lot of us thought that was very interesting because the original headline reported on what the president said. He urged unity in the face of these tragedies and he condemned these forms of racism, all racism. Apparently, news stories these days are supposed to be about what a person didn't say, not what they did, because the president in that speech did not call for gun control. People had a problem with it. So this was so frustrating because in that speech, it appeared that Trump said everything that everyone on both sides of this debate wanted him to say. But they they didn't believe it, <laughs> it appears. And they don't want the New York Times reporting simply on basic facts of the president's response to these shootings. This to me is indicative of sort of a broader, more general problem we have of politicizing these sorts of tragedies immediately, where it's not about what actually happened. It's not about what was actually said. It's about how can this somehow further my my political agenda, which in this case is almost always gun control and or bashing Republicans um, and or, you know, throwing around that someone's responsible for the blood of children um, who wasn't anywhere close to committing the atrocity. And it's detrimental to the entire conversation because when you have this mindset of I don't care what you said, it's going to be wrong. Whatever you say is going to be wrong. You know, we're seeing this even with regard to to mental health. I mean, so it's not just with regard to to the president not being able to to say anything. I mean, he flatly condemned white supremacy and it it wasn't enough somehow. You know, somehow he didn't actually do that. Um, But we're seeing this with people saying, oh, well, well, mental health has nothing to do with gun violence, which is laughable to, to anyone who looks at the statistics of this and sees the tremendous relationship between serious untreated mental health problems um, and not just mass public shootings, um, but also suicides, which are um, statistically a much bigger part of the problem. Um, and now all of a sudden, um, you, you know, it's uh, we can't say mental health is related to it because that gives us uh, an easy solution that that we don't like because it doesn't have to do with guns. So much of this, so much of the rhetoric and the response um, to, to all aspects of this is being driven by an underlying concern for furthering a policy that people want and and making this political. And it's just making our inability to 
to really have meaningful discussions worse. It's it's fostering an environment in which it's impossible to to find those those complex answers to to complex problems um, because everything has to be a simple solution that that somehow furthers my my preferred policy point. Well, speaking of complex solutions to these complex problems, I wanted to ask you a twofold question. Would any type of gun control fix these problems? And what are these red flag laws that we have heard actually some Republican lawmakers start proposing? Well, so in terms of what I would consider commonly proposed gun control measures, things like universal background checks or raising the age of purchase, um, you know, banning, quote, uh, so-called assault weapons, which really have no meaning. Again, because people are so unwilling to look at a lot of the, the underlying causes um, and the reality of what's happening with these mass public shootings, they're, they're coming up with solutions that aren't tailored to actually prevent anything bad from from happening. Um, so take universal background checks, for example. Um, all of these shooters would have passed universal background checks. Um, and in fact, most of them do. They, like They go through official stores and, and are able to purchase them and pass background checks um, because they know that they can, um, which kind of brings us into our next uh, that that next part about red flag laws. Um, so m- most mass public shooters uh, don't have disqualifying uh, criminal records or mental health histories, and that's why they're able to pass background checks. So expanding background checks, it's like, uh, okay, it does nothing because they they're still going to get the guns. And what the basic concept of a red flag law is is to say, look, there are certain individuals who we know this specific type of individual who keeps committing these mass public shootings who haven't yet committed a crime or been convicted of a crime or haven't yet reached a point uh, where, you know, they've been committed to a mental health institution uh, because it just hasn't gotten that bad. But everyone is uh, concerned about their behavior for objective reasons um, that, that are very clear but our, our laws aren't tailored in a way to catch that. And red flag laws say, okay, how do we sort of expand the scope of what we're defining as dangerousness? So how how do we identify and, and disarm individuals who we know are just objectively by their actions dangerous, but aren't yet disqualified from owning guns? And so red flag laws try to capture that um, by, by broadening what it means to be dangerous and then disarming those individuals after some form of due process um, and disarming them, you know, only for the amount of time that that they continue to be dangerous. Um, and, and so that's kind of the basic gist of that. A lot of conservatives have concerns when there's any law brought against the Second Amendment. Dana Lash came out with an article this week. So what would you say to those critics? Uh, well, so I I'll start off by saying I haven't read the Dana Lash article, so I'm not going to uh, respond specifically to that. Um, but generally, there are there are legitimate concerns that are brought up. I mean, these are not people who are off the rockers. The, these are people with with very legitimate concerns um, about due process. I mean, we are talking about um, infringing uh, fully. I mean, completely stripping uh, someone of their Second Amendment right, even temporarily. And this is someone who hasn't yet been convicted of a crime. Um, and so that that's a big deal. Um, that being said, so. First of all, for more of a philosophical context, right? The, the Second Amendment right protects the, the rights of, of people who are peaceable citizens. So there's there's a reason we restrict the Second Amendment rights of, of people who, um, you know, have been convicted of violent crimes or who are 
um, you know, in a mental institution because they're a danger to the public. Um, and so basically all, all this is doing, again, is, is sort of expanding, you know, there are many ways someone can be an objective danger to the public. Um, but so how do we address those concerns? And part of that uh, has to do with, again, ensuring um, adequate measures of, of due process um, that are equivalent to those we'd see, like if someone were to be committed to a mental institution. And, and then not just talking uh, about due process, but also talking about the temporary nature of these restrictions, because one of the, the purposes of this is, is to avoid sort of imposing uh, substantial like lifelong burdens on people, um, but but rather just you know temporarily disarming them and and pointing them in the direction of, of treatment and, and getting healthy, and then being able to restore those rights to them. Um, and so there are actually people who say, well, why don't we just you know expand the scope of of existing laws we have? And I say that's that's exactly the purpose of red flag laws. You know, you, you can use whatever sort of context you want for this, but the reality is. Um, you know, that there are people who are objectively dangerous um, that that can and should be disarmed temporarily. Um, but, you know, we should be restoring their rights. We should be um, ensuring due process. I mean, the other thing, too, is is that what this does is it, it expands the, the people, the, the types of people who can petition the government. Um, so like what we saw in Parkland, for example, is we had um, so many opportunities for people in positions of authority to, to do something and they never did. Um, so red flag laws can open that door for uh, family members, uh, particularly to, to petition a court and say, look, no one's doing anything. This person is dangerous. And then to have a court hearing over it. Um, but but again, you know, I, I understand those concerns. Um, I, I'd say there, there are great resources available. Some states have done this really well. Some states have, have done it not so well um, of ensuring that there is meaningful due process, um, that, that we have processes in, processes in place um, to ensure that you know, people aren't just harassing uh, people that and also to, to say that these have to be objective factors. Right. Because the last thing we want um, is to have some sort of squishy definition of dangerous where suddenly anyone who's ever worn a MAGA hat is considered dangerous because Donald Trump is a racist. And therefore, like, clearly you're, you're dangerous and deranged. Um, but but to specifically define um, those factors that that we know are objectively setting people apart as dangerous um, and I think it's a concept that most people, if you ask them, they will agree on that concept of there are dangerous people who need to be disarmed. It becomes a question of how do we do that? And you can call it whatever you like. You can call it red flag laws. You can call it you know better utilizing the systems we already have in place. Um, it, it, but we have to acknowledge that. And I think we all do. It's just a matter of figuring out how do we do that um, in a way that that isn't wrongfully infringing on the rights of people who are not dangerous. We could and should talk about this issue all day, but we do have to wrap up this segment before we do that. I know your work isn't just focused on the Second Amendment. You've looked into mental health and, and, and other areas. For those who do want to be a productive uh, part of this conversation regarding mass shootings, um, do you have any specific papers or areas that might be worth digging into that the mainstream media isn't necessarily telling us about? Uh, well, definitely just in, in the last couple months, uh, my colleague John Malcolm and I have released a series of uh, three papers looking at the the interaction of, of mental illness, um, especially untreated mental illness and gun violence. Um, and, and so kind of exploring that and how we got to what is really sort of the, a mental health crisis in this country. Um, but then also what, what do good policies look like? Um, so especially if you're inter interested in, in good policies surrounding red flag laws and, and mental health laws. 
um, look at these papers, um, you know, look at the series of papers. Uh, it, they go in depth about you know, particular safeguards that, that are good uh, in terms of red flag laws. And um, I would just really recommend those. Thank you, Amy. That was just a really thoughtful and interesting discussion. We just really appreciate you coming on the program. And also this week, you were on the Daily Signal podcast. So I want to give a a plug for that. It's a daily podcast where you get to hear from experts like Amy, heritage experts, just lots of different people from throughout the conservative movement. And also they give you some news. They give you some headlines. So if you enjoyed this interview with Amy, I really would recommend that you check it out. It's daily. It's not weekly like Problematic Women. You can find that on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to take a quick break. All right, we're back, and it is now time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week, or shall we say, Women of the Week. This week, the honor goes to all the women in Saudi Arabia. According to The Hill, a new royal decree states that women in the country can travel, get this, without needing the permission of a male guardian. This ends decades of restrictive policy in the country. This is a pretty big deal. And one that just shows how fortunate that we are in the Western world, specifically in the United States of America, where we never even have to think about asking men for permission before we get in our cars on a plane or really go anywhere for that matter. This isn't the first big win for women in Saudi Arabia. Last year, they gained the right to drive. We applaud them for that, their bravery, uh, their persistence in fighting for their rights, and we hope this trend continues. That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Amy, if any of our listeners wanted to follow you on social media, how could they find you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Amy Swearer. That's S-W-E-A-R-E-R. Um, or you can find uh, more of uh, my, my research and writings either at heritage.org or at thedailysignal.com. Conservatives do need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, associate producer Samantha Rank, special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.